Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is going to cover the film Storyville by Mark Frost, who is one of the co-creators of Twin Peaks. This is another entry in the ongoing, every few months series, Twin Peaks Cinema, which will eventually branch off into its own podcast. Originally this week, I wanted to cover the film First Reformed to conclude my Ethan Hawke series, but I realized this was better timed because... I'm coming out with a video essay very soon for my series, Journey Through Twin Peaks, that focuses on Mark Frost's work, so you can actually see clips from this film I'm discussing and other things he's done and how it fits in with his overall career, which is something I talk about on this podcast, so I thought this would be the time to share that. Fair warning, if that wasn't hint enough, this will discuss spoilers for the whole series of Twin Peaks. That's how we make comparisons between the films and the show, so if you haven't seen Twin Peaks yet, maybe save this one for when you have. So before we get to it, uh, here's what I've been up to uh, elsewhere on the internet. I appeared on Twin Peaks Unwrapped for the second time in a few weeks. It was actually the second part of one big episode we recorded. They split it into two, and it covers the Killer's Reveal episode of the show. It's with John Thorne and Josh Minton, and it was a really great discussion. Uh, The second part focuses mostly on the actual revelation scenes and their implications and all of that. I'll link both parts one and two in the show notes, because I actually forgot to link part one a few weeks ago when I mentioned it. On my Patreon, I opened up the coverage of episode 16 on my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast to all listeners. So that's the one that comes a couple episodes after the killer's reveal, where that whole storyline is resolved. And I guess since I said we're discussing spoilers, I can talk about it more openly. That's the episode where Leland is captured and died. So there was a lot to talk about there. That in itself is a two-parter of just me covering the episode. So you can check that out on my Patreon for a dollar a month. And I'll also be working on the Journey Through Twin Peaks video as you're hearing this. So hopefully within the next couple of weeks, that will be up. That'll be linked in the next one. And just keep an eye on my YouTube, Twitter, website, lostinthemovies.com, whatever the case may be, if you want to follow that. So that's what's going on there. Here is my discussion of Storyville. And it begins with a little bit of an announcement because after I recorded the review, a book came out which clarified some of the things I talk about in the review. So I addressed that first. The Conversations with Mark Frost book was released this past weekend. That book, An Oral History of Frost's Life and Career, conducted by David Bushman, clarifies some of the topics that I'm going to bring up in my Storyville review. Obviously, at the time of recording, I didn't know this stuff yet, so I, I couldn't explain it, but... Apparently, the reason the film made so little money was because a dishonest producer signed on for a fee and then withheld his investment at the last minute, forcing the studio to dump the movie with no promotion in a few theaters, and it took the loss that I discuss in said review that's coming up in this episode. So I kind of speculate about that and wonder, but that's that's what actually happened. The studio itself really didn't have anything to gain from the movie. It was just going to take a, a bath on anything it spent in terms of promotion because of the way the investment worked. And the guy who put the money up was like, yeah, I don't have it. Come sue me if you want it. So this really disillusioned Frost, and he never wanted to direct again. So that's the sad backstory of, of what happened with Storyville that I didn't know at the time of recording. This whole experience is treated in great detail in Bushman's very excellent book, which I highly recommend and I hope to discuss further at a later date, uh, including with the author at some point, hopefully. In the world of campaign promises and political payoffs, a candidate's private moment can quickly become public record. I want the tape. The candidate, the seduction, the murder. It all happens in Storyville. 
James Spader, Joanne Wally Kilmer, Jason Robards. Directed by Mark Frost. Storyville. Rated R. This film came out in 1992, written and directed by Mark Frost, co-written. He wrote it with Lee Reynolds, who I don't think he collaborated with on anything else. It's based on a book called Juryman, which is Australian. Uh, I learned from the Bickering Peaks a podcast on this film, which I will definitely link up below, and you should totally check it out. They did a great series on all of Mark Frost's work up to, I think, 2005 or six. I learned that actually this film has almost nothing to do with that novel in terms of at least its setting. It's not set in New Orleans. I think he takes the loose idea of the plot, but I think the characters might be different as well. So this is kind of a Frost original in some ways. So to summarize the story here, it's about Cray Fowler, who's played by James Spader. He's running for Congress. He's a very young man, probably late 20s, early 30s, and he comes from this prestigious family in the area. Uh, critics compared them to the Huey Long family, obviously, because they've got this populist up-from-nothing tradition where the grandfather was born in a shack and he became a millionaire, and now they live on this estate, and the film opens with a big party where they're celebrating his uh, Cray Fowler's candidacy. But there's nothing really distinguished about him as a political figure. He's just running because that's what he's supposed to do, according to the family. And he's down 20 points in the poll against a Republican who's running a tough-on-crime campaign, attacking Cray's record as a public defender. Obviously shades of Willie Horton here, the ad that uh, George Bush used against uh, Michael Dukakis four years before this film came out. So Fowler, or Cray, I guess I'll call him because there's a few Fowlers in this film. Cray is separated from his current wife, and he's increasingly drawn to a former flame, Natalie Tate, played by Joanna Wally Kilmer, who is a prosecutor. He also has a one-night stand with a Vietnamese-American woman, Lee Tran, played by Charlotte Lewis, whose father, Zhang, George Chung, videotapes their encounter and then fights Cray when he finds out about this, this attempt at blackmail and then winds up stabbed to death in mysterious circumstances while Cray is knocked out cold. So Cray wakes up, sees this guy with his throat slit and flees the building as he hears like police sirens in the distance, manages to get away, throws away the murder weapon or hides the murder weapon rather and is like, wow, I got away by the skin of my teeth. So what's he going to do next? Well, he decides to defend Lee against murder charges. Uh, she's accused of killing her father. This is an interesting twist in the plot, and uh, the characters don't totally seem sure why this is happening, why he's doing this, and he almost doesn't seem too sure himself, but he presents it to them as like this great political move where he's going to uh, show that he's a man of the people or this sort of noblesse oblige patrician descending from the clouds to defend... Uh, immigrant woman who's been accused of, of murder. And he's going up against Natalie, who is prosecuting the case. So he's got all kinds of conflicts of interest in this scenario. And one fairly ridiculous sequence, uh, she comes to his apartment. They start making out on the couch. They accidentally sit on the remote, which turns on the TV where he's playing the tape, making out with it. It's like, man, this would have been a really easy situation to avoid. Just eject that tape before you make out with her on the couch right across her. There's a few things in this film like that. Things happen that are convenient or flashy, but you could question their logic a little bit. Now I'm going to talk about spoilers for the film just because as we talk about its connection to Twin Peaks and to other media, you have to get into that stuff. So fair, fair warning. Uh, it's a hard film to see anyways. I was able to to rent it from Netflix. 
but uh, it's on a four by three cropped image, so you don't actually get a full widescreen that I'm sure it was shot in, which is disappointing. I'd love to see a proper version of this film someday, because even in that format, it's quite gorgeous to look at, like very nicely photographed film. We'll get to that in a moment too. But as the film goes along, uh, Cray is also, he links up with Nathan LaFleur, Michael Warren, a prominent attorney who believes the Fowler's fortune is built on dishonest land dealings that robbed many poor black farmers of their rightful property. So these storylines ultimately come together. He finds out that the setup is connected to this research and uh, that he's doing about his family's history. And also the fact that his father, uh, either, you know, depending who you believe, was in a mysterious hunting accident or a suicide or possibly something with more foul play uh, several years earlier. And he finds out he was looking into the same history. As he discovers these secrets, uh, Cray's close relationship with his uncle Clifford, Jason Robards, starts to be frayed. So I haven't even mentioned Robards yet, but he's one of the highlights of the film. I mean, perfectly cast for this part of this old patrician, suspicious accomplice to the hero who really becomes a villain by the end. The film climaxes with a shootout in a courtroom that is also quite ridiculous. It ends with the judge shooting Michael Parks, who plays a corrupt cop in here, and then is followed by a confrontation with Cray and Clifford, who turns out to be his actual father. So a lot of soap operatic developments here. Piper Laurie plays his mother, who is a weather woman, just an ordinary lady who got involved with the Fowlers back in the early 60s or whenever and uh, ended up marrying Cray's father, who took her hand to, to save her honor. But it turns out Clifford was his actual father. So Clifford, who's been mentoring him throughout the film, it turns out has this paternal interest, but also it's sketchy in other ways because he is the one who murdered the old Vietnamese man, and he holds the tape that threatens Cray. I could never quite figure this part out. Like, why hold on to that tape? Did he want to blackmail his, his nephew slash son at some point? Did he think if he ever gets out of line, this will keep him in line? I guess that's what they're implying. The film ends with this odd cross-cutting between Clifford dying in the woods, or at least it seems. I couldn't tell if it was a flashback to him shooting his brother or if it's him shooting himself. I think it's him shooting himself, but it's intercut with Cray the night of his victory where he confronts his uncle. So it's like, are we flashing forward and then going back? It's a little, little odd, but the film is very sumptuously directed. You can tell when somebody who's worked in TV is making a feature film, there's just that, that difference suddenly where they're like, oh no, this is cinema now. The way it's shot, the breathing, the, the, the pace, you know, it opens with the shot of him looking through the microfiche of these news articles, no dialogue, and then this long shot through the bayou coming up on the building. You can tell Godfather is a real reference point for this film, opening with this big party, and then we pull into the window, and uh, James Spader's sitting at that desk. The timing on this is interesting. It came out right after JFK, another conspiratorial political thriller set in New Orleans, and it's also not long after Wild at Heart, which was David Lynch, uh, Lynch's uh, southern New Orleans film. That film stars Grace Zabriskie. I'm going to link up my uh, character piece on Sarah Palmer below. Check out the part on the actor in that, um, or just go to Grace Brisky's Wikipedia page for that matter. She has a fascinating history in New Orleans. She was like in her 20s, right around that time of JFK's assassination. She knew Lee Harvey Oswald and all these other people circulated around her father's. I think he ran a bar. The strongest Lynch Frost connection to New Orleans is American Chronicles, the documentary series they ran on Fox during Twin Peaks' second season. The first episode of that is set in New Orleans, and Mark Frost directed it. 
one of his few directorial outings. He did an episode of Hill Street Blues, an episode of Twin Peaks, and that episode of American Chronicles. So this is an area that really fascinates him. You can totally tell why. It's got that occult vibe. It's got all these polit- this political history in depth that you can dig into, these secret associations and societies. It's all about Mardi Gras. I think that's the, the emphasis, if I remember correctly. I watched it a few months ago. So that's definitely a precursor to Storyville, where he's setting himself up. I think at this point, I think he'd been developing it for a while. And now it's like, hey, Twin Peaks is a hit. This is my chance. I'm going to direct this movie and flip myself into a film career. There's also strong vibes of that year's uh, campaign, the 1992 campaign, especially a scene in the documentary The War Room about uh, Clinton and his staff, you know, James Carville, uh, George Stephanopoulos are the major uh, presences in that film because their campaign office is just this sweaty studio in Arkansas. Whereas in this film, even though it's a congressional race, not a presidential race, it's this much more lavish uh, set that uh, that Cray Fowler's on. And, and that connection anyways is a coincidence because this film was shot early in 91 during the back half of season two. In fact, Frost says it distracted him from this season, which is interesting because it didn't come out until August 1992, like a year and a half later. So the production and post-production process couldn't have been that long. It seems like there is the film just got kind of caught up in some sort of studio drama. Frost has talked about that in the past, how it didn't get the proper release. And you can totally tell that when you look at the Wikipedia page, this film grossed $422,000 total. And if you look at Box Office Mojo, you can see why. It was released in only 19 theaters, and apparently it left most of them within a week. Those are the stats they have anyways. Who knows? So to put this in perspective, you know, Firewalk With Me is seen as a massive flop. That made 10 times as much as this film did. They also came out the exact same week, which is astonishing, kind of mind-blowing. Want to know how that happened. So Lynch and Frost pitted against each other. And uh, if Lynch's film did slightly better at the box office, still nothing to write home about. Critically, this was a much more acclaimed film. And the critics went out of their way to compare this to Twin Peaks. So Vincent Camby in the New York Times, who, as you'll probably recall, wrote the most scathing review, one of the most scathing, it's got a lot of competition, of Firewalk With Me, saying that it wasn't the worst film of all time, it just appeared to be. He said of Storyville, it's far less of a tease than the television series, a good deal shorter and much more fun. Jonathan Rosenbaum wrote a pretty critical review of Storyville, but said uh, it's certainly a better movie than Twin Peaks. Time Magazine ran a positive capsule directly above a negative one of Firewalk With Me, and they titled the uh, Firewalk With Me capsule Goryville, noting, while Mark Frost is happy to leave the town he helped make a primetime legend, his ex-partner is still living there. So there was a general favorability in the press toward Frost at a time when they really hated Lynch. They were ganging up on him in a way like, who is this guy pulling our legs? But they granted a lot of more generous feeling toward Frost. They, they didn't feel that he was uh, as responsible, I guess, as Lynch was for all of their disappointments in Twin Peaks. Roger Ebert wrote one of the most uh, interesting reviews of this film. And there's a paragraph where he says, the movie was directed and co-written by Mark Frost, one of David Lynch's key collaborators on Twin Peaks, who started on the screenplay a couple years before the Lynch Project. You can see something of the same sensibility, the willingness to follow a tangled labyrinth of evil and deception as it spirals down through the generations. The difference is that Frost Storyville takes its story seriously, or at least pretends to, while the Twin Peaks projects are at pains to distance the filmmakers from the material. With Lynch's recent work, it's as if he wants you to know he's superior to the material. Frost doesn't mind being implicated. 
He likes this kind of stuff and plunges into the dark waters of his plot with real joy. So that's a sort of a dubious assertion to make in a few ways. I I see what he's getting at. I think Frost is more comfortable sincerely engaging with genre material, whereas Lynch puts more of a spin and hate to use the word irony with Lynch, but you know, let me put it this way. For a viewer to watch Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks, for them, I think there's there's like levels of irony to their engagement with it. I don't know that Lynch intends that, but naturally the way he directs performances, the strange twists he put on it often evokes that in the viewer. Storyville is like a much more straightforward political thriller. But on the other hand, Frost is the one who made uh, Invitation to Love this really postmodern winking, don't take this too seriously folks gesture, whereas Lynch wanted it to be a more sincere engagement with soap operas, and Lynch in general is a little more earnest in that way. Frost Frost does like to be clever and playful in a in a different, more conscious way, I think, than than Lynch. Like going back to his days as a playwright, even writing like a musical about Idi Amin when he was a college student. Now, of course, the real distinction you can draw between Frost and Lynch with a lot of their material, and uh, Storyville being a case in point, is politics and history. Frost loves this stuff, loves it, lives for it. I mean, look at his Twitter feed. It's always about... Uh, not just Trump, but particularly these kind of like the Russiagate stories and the intrigue of the corruption and the things like that. This is what makes him tick. So the part of Twin Peaks that Storyville connects with the most closely to me is the secret history of Twin Peaks, where you get into all of this intergenerational intrigue and the sprawling conspiracies, digging into the past. And even within Twin Peaks, you get that with the Packards and the Horns and the stuff with Josie killing her husband and Cooper writing all this stuff in the dossier. It's interesting to watch this film again after reading The Secret History. And, you know, there's a little of that in Final Dossier, but I think really much more The Secret History of Twin Peaks reflects that. That's Frost's magnum opus when it comes to Twin Peaks. It's really his firewalk with me. It's his passion project of what interests him about this universe and bringing stuff in that's that's different from that universe. There's a lot of crossover actors and crew between Storyville and Twin Peaks. I already mentioned Piper Laurie, uh, Michael Parks, who plays Jean Renault is uh plays a very suppose a similar villain he's less cool than jean renault in this film uh jean renault is he holds on to himself pretty well this character is a hothead and uh, both have very memorable accents in this case french cajun versus french canadian you have uh, galen gorg i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly she played nancy in uh, twin peaks the the sister of blackie who comes and has an affair with jean renault so here she is alongside him again she plays i believe if I remember correctly a prostitute or an exotic dancer a sex worker of some kind who was like a witness to what was going on that night when the killing happened and actually James Spader himself is almost a Twin Peaks connection he was the original actor cast to play Denise Bryson and eventually was replaced by uh, David Duchovny so uh, Lynch and Frost wanted to work with him and Frost eventually got to and there's also some interesting Twin Peaks crew on here. Ron Garcia, who shot the Twin Peaks pilot and then also Firewalk with me right after this film, he is the cinematographer. And as I said, this is like a, a really nice looking movie. Just got that gorgeous Gordon Willis, a little bit of a Gordon Willis look, not as dark as Gordon Willis. In fact, it's much more bright and colorful in many scenes, but that moody 70s thriller vibe to it and makes great use of the locations, New Orleans, beautiful blues and yellows and very much of that late 80s, early 90s lush look. Sometimes it can be a little over the top, but I think maybe we've gotten back to a little more of that. 10 years ago, every movie was like filtered through this like sickly green filter and uh, we seem to have gotten past that a little bit at least, which is nice, but uh, that period I think had some really beautiful uh, films 
and this this is one of them. And Richard Hoover is the production designer. Now that's interesting because I can't remember her name, but Lynchy is someone else for the pilot firewalk with me. Hoover is like a Minnesota mafia type of guy. Now the Minnesota mafia refers to a lot of these actors and crew people who Mark Frost brought on. Some of the people on Twin Peaks come from Lynch's world and other ones come from Frost's world from when he was, you know, he grew up in, in uh, the Twin Cities. His father was a professor at, the, I think, the University of, is it Minneapolis or Minnesota? I don't know. Apologies to Midwesterners listening. Richard Hoover was from that area, and he was brought on by Frost to work on Twin Peaks. So I love his production design work on Twin Peaks, how he built this Disneyland set on the sound stages of Van Nuys. And he's got some great locations here, too. I think uh, all location work. I don't know that any sets were built for this film great location scouting but also good beautiful dressing of it these these old new orleans artifacts and everything like that there a couple of the most interesting crew connections are johanna ray the casting director and deepak nayar the first ad because those are total lynch first people so although lynch and frost appear to have had some tensions at this time i don't think they ever like fought or anything but they were definitely growing distant from one another but they're trading these crew members back and forth where both of them worked on Firewalk and they just like Ron Garcia shortly after Storyville. Cray Fowler as a protagonist, I think illuminates Mark Frost's vision of Cooper in interesting ways. Uh, Frost always sees Cooper as this flawed hero, this guy with these noble motives, but also these human weaknesses, uh, as opposed to Lynch, who I think at least up to a point until it became impossible because of all the developments Frost kind of brought to the plot, saw Cooper as more of this idealized ethereal figure kind of above it all kind of the ideal ideal hero in some ways in like a, a goofy lovable zany kind of way frost sees him as more down to earth a uh, cray is different though from a lot of frost protagonists in that he's not any kind of like expert or genius or anything whereas a lot of these people are like extremely talented you know sherlock holmesian characters a lot of his heroes larger than life in that way and this character is becoming or trying to become that like by the end of the film there's a very michael corleone arc to this where he starts off as a naive in the family and then by the end he's the one holding the power in the reins and he has this moment with the joanne uh, whaley kilmer character where they're looking across each other at a bar that's a little like some stuff with diane keaton and al pacino in that film i think in a way this is Mark Frost's version of Jeffrey Beaumont, a character coming of age, more than of Cooper. This is his version of the character coming into the world, finding out its darkness and figuring out how to grapple with it. We've spent a long time talking about this film, drawing connections to Twin Peaks. Uh, now I'm almost curious to write like a dual review of this in Blue Velvet. I think there could be some interesting th things there. In terms of plot development, really, this is most similar. And I already mentioned this in relation to Secret History of Twin Peaks, but even just within Twin Peaks Season 1, to the Horn and Packard plots, where you have these long generational legacies passed down from one generation to the other of sort of corruption and wheeling dealing. You know, Audrey finding out about her father's past, going to the One-Eyed Jacks, that, in some ways, is the closest character arc to Cray Fowler in this film, finding out who his uncle-slash-father really is. And, of course, with a real false figure, father figure, you have a connection to Leland Palmer and Laura as well, but filtered, in this case, through a masculine rather than a feminine character. Uh, in closing, too, I want to mention their connections, major connections to Hill Street Blues here. The cop team in that show Hill and Renko, uh, both of those actors are cast in this film. And Charles Hayde was is a longtime friend of Mark Frost. He plays Abe Choate, this sleazy pornographer who uh, testifies in court and was involved with the murder. And he actually directed several episodes of Frost's show Buddy Farrow about a private eye 
who comes out of the cold after years of an exile, comes back to Los Angeles in the late 90s. And Charles Hayde was uh, heavily involved with that show. Him and Frost used to like sit on a porch at Hayde's place and come up with these characters that uh, Hayde would play just, oh, run with this idea. They said that Renko and Hill Street Blues actually came out of that, even though Frost was not involved because he was friends with him before Hill Street Blues. I think he may have been one of the reasons he he came out and started writing for that show. So I think this character in Storyville is also very colorful, may have been another character they came up with that way. From Storyville on, Mark Frost would be the primary author of his own work. This is really a hinge in his career, just like Firewalk With Me serves as a hinge for Lynch in in a different way, because Lynch was always the primary author, with the exception of Dune and maybe Elephant Man. But he's always at the lead of his work. For Frost, it was different. He was writing a film for John Schlesinger. He worked on another horror film. He was a writer on Hill Street Blues, which was Stephen Bochco's show, wrote episodes for hire for other shows. And so Twin Peaks was his moment to come out. And even though he never really worked much in TV again after that, with the brief exception of All Souls in the early 2000s and Buddy Farrow in the late 90s, he, in his in his writing career, writing you know novels and nonfiction and the work that he did over the years, he became kind of an auteur in his own right with uh, Twin Peaks and into Storyville. Twin Peaks is, uh, in some ways, this power struggle between him and Lynch, and Storyville opens him up, even though he did not become a director. The next film that he was able to bring to fruition was, uh, I believe, the greatest game ever played in 2005. And that was based on a book he wrote. He produced and wrote it, but he did not direct it. He hired Bill Paxton, uh, the actor, to direct it. So for whatever reason, he just did not pursue a directorial career after this. But he became this author with his own voice, eclectic across all different types of books. And uh, I think the one exception would be Fantastic Four. Uh, That is a work for hire. Uh, for better or worse, I'll let you decide. I think this film is worth watching, and I uh, hope you enjoyed me using Twin Peaks as a way into it. Uh, it's probably not one of the most connected to Twin Peaks, the films we'll discuss in this section, but as the only film of one of the Twin Peaks' two creators, uh, we're going to be discussing a lot of Lynch films in relation to Twin Peaks, too, over time, and I thought this was worth bringing in in that sense. So that's it for Storyville. One more note from the uh, Conversations of Mark Frost book. I mentioned that his co-writer was Lee Reynolds on this. As it turns out, that was someone who wrote an earlier draft of the script before Frost really took over the project. He never worked with that person, and not much of it was left uh, in the finished film, it seems. So that's the case with that. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe. If you really enjoy it, please donate on Patreon. Become a monthly patron. You get all kinds of perks. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of extra podcast content that's already on there now. Like what you hear on these public podcasts is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, If you have any feedback on this or any of the previous episodes, there's no shelf life on it. Like send it in and I'd love to read it. I've already got some on a first reformed that I'm looking forward to sharing. And since that one's now postponed for a couple weeks, uh, you got a couple more weeks to write in on that as well. Here's what we will finally be uh, listening to in the next couple weeks. Uh, since I already announced it, my, uh, my topic will be first reformed. And here's a little taste of that to come. Opportunistic diseases, anarchy, martial law. You will live to see this. You had no idea that he was thinking of. No, I'm so frightened. These kids, they want certainty. You know, don't think, follow. They fall prey to extremism. It's a world without hope. No, 
I have not lost my faith.